our path of practice and meditation is described in a number of different ways. And different traditions offer different models uh, that we can use to kind of understand or look at this process. And the Buddha spoke in, in different ways. He taught in different ways and elaborated the teaching according to who he was teaching, according to his audience and, and the situation, uh, the circumstances at the time. This was part of his genius, was being able to teach in a way that uh, was suitable for his audience, that they would understand and follow. And so we find the teachings presented in terms of the Four Noble Truths and a deepening understanding of the way this core teaching of the Buddha is practiced and and, uh, unfolds through our meditation. Understanding the truth of dukkha, the cause of, of dukkha, of stress, of suffering, of difficulty, and the cessation of it and the path that leads to it. And so following from this, we can look at our process of meditation in terms of the unfolding of the Eightfold Noble Path and these, uh, the three trainings in sila, samadhi, and panya that comprise the Eightfold Path, the trainings in conduct, ethical conduct, and mind development and wisdom. There's a model that involves uh, the path of purification in terms of stages of insight, progress of insight and successive stages of enlightenment. And this focuses on ever-deepening understanding of, of what are called the three characteristics, these universal characteristics, common characteristics of all phenomena, all conditioned experience, the truths of anicca, change, and dukkha, unsatisfactoriness, and anatta, the coreless, uncontrollable, selfless aspect of experience of life. And some traditions speak about discovering one's Buddha nature, resting in natural great perfection, connecting with this luminous purity of heart that I spoke about last week. And at different times, we might find that one or another of these models for understanding our process and as we walk this path, different times one or the other may seem to match our experience most clearly, most directly. And this is just a natural part of the process. At different times we see different things. And there's another way that the path is described, which is in terms of the perfecting or ripening of what are called the paramis or paramita in Sanskrit. I'm sure most of you have heard of these, may be quite familiar with these paramis, these ten noble or beautiful qualities, at least in the Theravada tradition. There are said to be ten beautiful, noble qualities that the Buddha is said to have uh, perfected and developed these and perfect them, perfected them over countless lifetimes as the bodhisattva. And these are mostly spoken about in uh, a collection in the suttas, the Jataka Pitaka, the collection of Jataka stories, which are teaching stories, teaching fables, you could say, that 
talk about the, the previous lives of the Buddha, and often he's born as, a, as an animal in many of them, you know, a deer or a goose or different animals, and often his chief disciples, Moggallana and Sariputta, are, are there in some role, supporting role, these different uh, teaching stories. And so you could say, in, if we look at the path in this way, that the culmination of the path, that the quality of the fully awakened mind or heart, that in this, in this case, the, these paramis are brought to completion, are brought to, conf- to perfection, completely developed. In the text, there's a place where uh, Sariputta is asking the Buddha a question. He asks, how many qualities are there, Lord, that issue in Buddhahood? And the Buddha answers, there are, Sariputta, ten qualities issuing in Buddhahood. What are the ten? Giving, Sariputta, is a quality issuing in Buddhahood. Virtue, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, determination, loving-kindness, and equanimity. These are qualities that issue in Buddhahood. So I'll read this list again, maybe new for some of you and a good review for the rest. And I'll give you the Pali names for the list of the paramis. So the first one is dana, which is usually called generosity or giving, sometimes giving of oneself. Sila, is virtue or ethical conduct. Nekama is renunciation. Panya, wisdom or insight. Virya, energy, effort, courage, diligence. Kanti is patience, and it has qualities of tolerance and forbearance, acceptance, endurance. Satcha is truthfulness or honesty. Aditana, determination or resolve. Metta, loving kindness. And Upeka, equanimity. And so we really can see our entire practice, the whole path in this way, as the cultivation, the strengthening of these wholesome qualities. And this is something that's happening continuously as we go through our days here, no matter what's happening just through our willingness to be present, to come back, to be present with our experience. I think maybe seeing the path this way is, is more common, at least it seems to be especially common in Asia and among Asian teachers, at least I've noticed this with many of my teachers in, in Burma and Thailand, they often relate to the path in terms of the ripening of paramis and they speak about it in this way. And this may have to do with a view that they tend to hold where they see practice as unfolding over lifetimes. They tend to take a very broad, long-term view of, of the path. And there's an understanding of rebirth which permeates the culture there. But whether or not the idea of rebirth is meaningful for us, we can see this in terms of a single lifetime also. You know, we go through so many different births, 
just in a single day or even a single period of meditation in a way. In a way, our, our whole life, one lifetime, is a continual flow of, of births and deaths and rebirths. And we can be born into a heavenly realm and, and drop to some pit of despair and anguish and everywhere in between in a single day or sometimes even in a single hour of meditation. We can go through all these changes, these different births, you could say. And through this ebb and flow, these different realms that we take birth in, even in a single life through this ebb and flow, there's this continual process of developing these noble, beautiful qualities of heart and of mind. Sometimes we meet people who seem to have one or more of these qualities very highly developed. You know, we're not all the same. And, and we meet someone who seems to have just an abundance of energy or they're very, very generous. They just seem to naturally be very generous or kind and loving. I was thinking about this when I was putting these notes together for the talk and I was, I, my mother came to mind uh, something I didn't notice about her when I was growing up, but in thinking of my mom, she she was had this amazing abundance of energy. It seemed she, you know, took complete care of the house. She did everything there. She, you know, all the cooking. That was what people my mother's age were the cooks, and she was a really good cook. And she she was a great gardener. She made beautiful flower garden in the yard and. I grew up in the desert and you had to water everything. So she was always dragging hoses all over the place to water stuff. And she was a very good uh, ceramic artist. She was a potter and she had a pottery studio at home and she made all the dishes in our house, she made them. She made all her own glazes. She would burn things and make ash and make glazes. And she was part of a cooperative crafts gallery. So she had to work there as well and and then she was constantly volunteering she she taught sewing in poor communities and she delivered meals to elderly folks who were homebound and she worked as a peace activist and all these things and then she had friends and and she raised four children you know it's kind of the list kind of goes on and on you know she wasn't superwoman but she was and she you know it never seemed like she was working too hard. It wasn't hyper at all. She did it all with a kind of grace and ease that was remarkable. So she just seemed to have an abundance of this. She seemed to have called, somehow come in with a, this energy parami highly developed. And sometimes we, we meet people who seem to have all of them or a lot of them really highly developed and they seem to come come in this way and and they seem to, when they come to practice, if they come to this practice, they seem to be able to deepen very quickly. And in Asia, the teachers would say, oh, well, their parami is very ripe. They would just see it this way and they'd there's this understanding that, that not everyone is the same in this way. But sometimes we find the idea of cultivating or perfecting these qualities maybe a little challenging to relate to you know, we hear the list and, and it seems like a checklist of qualities we don't have. And we get 
maybe disheartened and discouraged and think, well, we'll never measure up. We'll, we're born the way we are and that's just it. And we'll always be deficient some way. We can, we can actually feel this way. It might seem funny, but, but sometimes we hold ourselves this way. But luckily, you know, we can, our minds and hearts are, are malleable. They aren't static. Nothing is set. Nothing is fixed. And where we place the power of our attention and, and where we bring our intention really matters. And the Buddha spoke very directly to this in, in this verse from the Dhammapada. It's a very famous verse. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with an impure mind one speaks or acts, suffering follows like the wheel of the cart follows the foot of the ox. Mind is the forerunner of all things. Mind is their chief. They are all mind made. If with a pure mind one speaks or acts, happiness follows like one's never departing shadow. And so there's this great emphasis in this placed on the power of intention, the power of the mind in this way. And so through our practice, we are strengthening these paramis, these beautiful, noble qualities, just by showing up and beginning over and over as we go through the days. And and we bring our attention and our intention to cultivating love and kindness and wisdom, understanding. And we're cultivating non-harming. We have this commitment to living harmlessly as much as possible, maintaining and keeping and refining the precepts. But we can tend to overlook this part of the path, I think, at times. We get very focused on trying to to do the practice, on trying to meditate, maybe trying to develop concentration. And we overlook and, and sometimes fail to even notice at all these other beneficial qualities that are being developed no matter what's going on. Things like perseverance and energy and resolve and kindness. I think it's really good to reflect on the fact that we are developing these paramis, really bring this to mind from time to time, especially, you know, when the going gets rough sometimes and, you know, we feel like nothing's happening in our practice and we find ourselves wondering, what is it I'm supposed to be doing here? You know, what is this all about? What good is this supposed to be? What does watching my breath have to do with anything? What does it have to do with liberation? I've always really liked children's books. I liked them when I was little and I like them now. (laughs) There's something about how simple and direct they are that I find very appealing and I like the pictures. uh, So I'm gonna, in the spirit of the Jataka stories, I'm gonna read you a story. It's uh, not a Jataka tale, it's from Frog and Toad. Some of you may know Frog and Toad. Those of you who've raised kids in the last 30 or 40 years may know Frog and Toad. Um, It's a level two reading with help. (laughs) book, which I thought might be about our speed. Uh, It's kind of my speed anyway. So um, 
This is from Frog and Toad Together. And uh, the story I'm going to read is The Garden. And I wish I could show you the pictures because they're very, um, they're very good. Frog is, frog is pretty green and Toad is kind of beige or tan. <laughs> and uh, they have nice outfits, but their feet are bare and they have really great feet. So anyway, there they are. <laughs> so this is the garden. <clears throat> Frog was in his garden. Toad came walking by. What a fine garden you have, Frog, he said. Yes, said Frog, it is very nice, but it was hard work. I wish I had a garden, said Toad. Here are some flower seeds. Plant them in the ground, said Frog, and soon you will have a garden. How soon, asked Toad. Quite soon, said Frog. Toad ran home. He planted the flower seeds. Now seeds, said Toad, start growing. <laughs> Toad walked up and down a few times. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head close to the ground and said loudly, now seeds, start growing. Toad looked at the ground again. The seeds did not start to grow. Toad put his head very close to the ground and shouted, now seeds, start growing. Frog came running up the path. What is all this noise? He asked. My seeds will not grow, said Toad. You are shouting too much, said Frog. These poor seeds are afraid to grow. <laughs> My seeds are afraid to grow, asked Toad. Of course, said Frog. Leave them alone for a few days. Let the sun shine on them. Let the rain fall on them. Soon your seeds will start to grow. That night, Toad looked out of his window. Drat, said Toad. My seeds have not started to grow. <laughs> They must be afraid of the dark. <laughs> Toad went out to his garden with some candles. I will read the seeds a story, said Toad. Then they will not be afraid. Toad read a long story to his seeds. And the next day, Toad sang songs to his seeds. He's standing in the rain holding an umbrella. And all the next day, Toad read poems to his seeds. And all the next day, Toad played music for his seeds. Toad looked at the ground. The seeds still did not start to grow. What shall I do, cried Toad. These must be the most frightened seeds in the whole world. <laughs> then Toad felt very tired and he fell asleep. Toad, Toad, wake up, said Frog. Look at your garden. Toad looked at his garden. Little green plants were coming up out of the ground. At last, shouted Toad, my seeds have stopped being afraid to grow. And now you will have a nice garden too, said Frog. Yes, said Toad, but you were right, Frog. It was very hard work. <laughs> well, you probably get my point here. But you know, meditation practice really is a lot like planting seeds in a garden. You know, it's, and a lot of the time we're like Toad with his seeds, you know, and they don't come, come up fast enough for us. And, you know, we start, and the first question we ask is, how soon? We start practicing immediately, we're looking to see if, 
if these seeds we're planting are starting to grow. And if we don't see results quick enough for our taste, we start to yell at our seeds or we yell at ourselves internally in some way. You know, and we must not be doing it right. We're doing something wrong. Maybe we're trying different strategies like Toad with his poems and stories and songs. Usually we're not quite as kind as Toad, you know, when he thought his seeds were frightened. frightened. We don't read stories and poems to our seeds. We, we blame them or we blame ourselves often. We find fault with the teachers or the teachings or something. We point here and there and we, we place the blame for our apparent lack of results. Joseph said I could tell this story. It's from the early days of IMS when it was first started here. And, and they got a piece of mail and it was addressed to the Instant Meditation Society. And, uh, you know, it's funny, but we want instant meditation, you know, and that would be great. That's what we want. There's a, in the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a place where the Buddha is talking about a hen who's trying to incubate, hatch her eggs. He says, suppose a hen has eight, 10 or 12 eggs. If she doesn't cover them rightly, warm them rightly or incubate them rightly, even though this wish may occur to her, oh, that my chicks might break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Still, it is not possible that the chicks will break through the eggshells with their spiked claws or beaks and hatch out safely. Why is that? Because the hen has not covered them rightly, warmed them rightly, or incubated them rightly. So we have to sit on our eggs. It doesn't matter how badly we want things to happen quickly. We want things to happen on our timetable if we don't sit on our eggs, they're not going to hatch. And sometimes it takes a while. But we're very impatient as a society here in the West, I think maybe especially, you know, we want everything to happen fast and we want quick results. And, and we can tend to lose interest if things don't happen as quickly as we think they should. You know, we're looking for a, a better way and better equals quicker you know, there's got to be a shortcut somewhere. I think the teachers are holding out on us. They're actually, there's a real quick way, but they want us to suffer. <laughs> <laughs> I think part of the reason that we have this impatience in our society and our culture is because we tend to misunderstood what patience is about. Sometimes we we might tend to confuse it with an attitude of, of not caring so much about the results of what we're doing, that somehow it means we shouldn't be so committed or, or somehow that we're indifferent or there's a lack of resolve or of dedication there. You know, this carefree attitude of letting things run their course without any real commitment. Or we might think patience is some kind of stoic quality where we, we grit our teeth and we bear down and, and we tough it out and we make it through. But usually this leads us feeling tight and contracted. 
And we usually don't want to learn about patience because we usually have to do it when things are not going so well, when things are difficult. It's pretty easy to be patient when we're having a good time and when things are going well, when our experience is pleasant. Would you ever notice yourself feeling impatient when things are going well in your practice? Or when you like what's going on or like what you're doing? You know, it's easy. Then the issue doesn't come up. Right? We don't have to be patient then usually, maybe sometimes. But without the quality of patience in life and practice, we're, we're going to have a hard time. We're going to suffer because things aren't going to go the way we want them to very often, if ever. And so patience is really invaluable, really essential for us in our practice and in life. You know, things are not always going to go the way we want them to. And, you know, we're going along, we're minding our own business, meditating along nicely, and everything's going fine, and then all of a sudden it changes. You know, on retreat, how often does this happen? You know, everything's pretty easeful, and our minds are clear, and we're relaxed and present, and then all of a sudden it just falls apart. And we're confused and resistant and frustrated and angry. And often it just feels like this back and forth between these things. It might be easier if it didn't change, you know, if it was just kind of a drag all the time, it might get used to it and it wouldn't be so bad. But then we have these moments when things are going well, when it's not too bad, and then things come together and then and then we lose it again and you know, we wonder what went wrong, you know, what happened. Last year, I remember I, I had a period of retreat, and I remember starting the retreat, and, and I felt that if I'd never meditated at all, ever, I would be just as good, if not better at it, than I was. It just really had that feeling, you know. And probably that's not true. I don't know. But, you know, we really do have to bring patience to our practice, or we can get disheartened when we find things going that way. The Pali word, uh, as I mentioned in the list of paramis that I read, the the word is kanti, for patience. And it includes all these different qualities of, of patience and acceptance, of forbearance, and really of compassion and gentleness and steadiness. All these qualities are mixed in there in this word kanti. In the texts, there are a couple of places where patience is especially highly praised. In one place it says, no higher rule, the Buddhas say, than patience. And no greater thing exists than patience. And true patience really is imbued with these qualities of gentle, kind, steadfastness, this willingness to stay with it as we go through the sometimes rocky places, the rocky terrain of what it means to be human, and as we move through all of the different changes that inevitably come in our practice and in our lives. You know, sometimes I think that we, we hold on to a secret hope, a, a notion that 
that somehow we're going to reach a state where we only have pleasant experiences, that this is somehow the goal of practice. We wouldn't probably admit it if someone asked us, but I think secretly we might be holding out some hope as though you know we're tipping the balance in this direction, tipping the scales, and as though enlightenment equals a steady state of nothing but pleasant experiences. This might be the case in some of the heavenly realms if, if you believe in different realms of existence. You know, it's said that some of the deva realms, the, the experience is nothing but pleasant. There's only pleasant experience. This might sound pretty good to some of you about now, just to be in a realm of nothing but pleasure. But it's said that this realm, that the human realm, is the best place to practice and to realize the Dhamma because it's not too pleasant. So we have some incentive to practice, some inspiration. And it's not too difficult. It's not so difficult that we just are crushed under the weight of, of suffering. And there's this balance there. And in his teaching, the Buddha was pointing to a, to a freedom that doesn't depend on things being any particular way. Because true freedom can't depend on things being just one way, being a certain way. Because conditions are always changing and any peace we might find because of the conditions in our lives, it's not going to last. And when they change, then, then we'll be back where we started from. There's no real freedom there. So we have to be able to learn how to open to the whole thing, to the whole, to our whole life, when things are going well and when they aren't. We're gonna be in for a really hard time of it if we make our happiness dependent on having things go a certain way. If we make our happiness dependent on, on things being pleasant. Sometimes when we come to a retreat like this, we, we may have an agenda and we come to the retreat with, with an agenda to find some peace and calm, some ease. So we sit down, you know, this is what we're looking for. And then we sit down and we find that this wild, uncontrollable mind that's full of resistance and pettiness, that's what we find there. And everything that we've ever repressed or denied or done our best to get rid of somehow, to forget, to push aside, all of it shows up. Maybe even not stuff that's so difficult, but just boring, repetitious or embarrassing stuff. You know, every song we've ever heard and every stupid TV show we ever watched, it's all in there. And it's all going to come up. We get to play that song one more time. Sometimes when I notice this, I, I start to really appreciate the value of a renunciate lifestyle. Don't have as much of that stuff in there. But sooner or later, everything is going to come up. And a lot of it might be difficult to see. It's not easy to be with. There's so much that comes up in our experience that we find unacceptable. There's stuff that we have managed to somehow compartmentalize in our hearts and, you know, we've put it somewhere where we're not going to look at it. 
but if this is our strategy, we're going to be really, we're going to be in for a hard time. And this path is going to test us because we're going to have to look at it all sooner or later. I was reading a passage I found when I was thinking about this talk. I found this passage from an article, a chapter in a book. Uh, It was a book remembering the famous Tibetan teacher, uh, Chogyang Trungpa Rinpoche. This was a chapter by Jack Kornfield. And in this one uh, place in here, he was talking about an event in Berkeley in California where uh, Rinpoche was going to come, and it was a large group of people. It was a big hall, and a, a large group had assembled to hear him. And I guess he he tended to arrive late for things, and so he, he showed up quite late as usual. And, and when he came in, he said, if you want your money back, it's all right. Just go to the door and ask for it back. It's quite fine. In fact, if you haven't started the spiritual path, it's best not to begin. It's difficult, it's terrible, and you have to face all kinds of things that you won't like. As far as the ego is concerned, it's just one insult after another. (laughs) And sometimes it feels like this. You know, we sit down and it just feels like one insult after another as we watch our mind doing its thing, going through these gyrations. And, you know, we might keep some of it at bay for a while. We can create a temporary place of calm with concentration or we can zone out in some way. But sooner or later, we have to have a relationship with everything, with the whole of our being. And this is where patience, this quality of patience is an absolute necessity. You know, we can feel like, well, we have to get rid of some stuff in there and we have to reach some kind of exalted, rarefied state. And then we can practice and explore the teachings. But, but it's right here and now in the thick of it all is where the practice happens, not in some future time in some state of grace that we manage to pull together, but right right now in this body, this mind, in this moment, this is where the Dhamma will reveal itself, right in the right in the thick of the whole catastrophe. And patience is our best ally in being with this, in practicing, because it allows us to be with this process with some stability and with kindness gentleness and strength of heart. You know, we really need patience because we're going to get caught and we're going to get lost and hooked over and over. And sometimes it's going to be, it's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult and, and even painful. And we need to remind ourselves regularly, I think, that this is a path that takes time You know, we're unlearning, a lot of what we're doing is we're unlearning habits that we've been practicing for a long time, you know, lifetimes perhaps. And it's going to take a long time to unlearn these habits. And the only way to to do this is to stick with the practice, to be really resolute in what we're doing. This is what is going to ultimately make the difference. Because until we're fully enlightened, there will be times when, when there's confusion. 
And if we're fighting and struggling against this process, fighting the way things are, we're going to suffer. And we can create a situation where we're never good enough, we're never okay just as we are. Sometimes we get opportunities to develop patience in life that we, we might wish we weren't getting. You know, usually it's, we learn about patience by being impatient a lot of the time. Over the last few years, I, I, my sister and I have spent a lot of time looking after my parents who both passed away this year. They were both almost 92. They'd been together for 70 years, which is a long time to do anything. It's a long time to breathe, let alone be with the same person, stay married to someone. And it was a great practice in patience to be caring for them. And in the last few years, my mother had pretty severe dementia, especially in the last couple of years of her life. And it was difficult, you know. I'd, we'd have the same conversation over and over. She'd ask me a question and I'd answer. And then as soon as I'd finished, she'd ask that question again because nothing was staying in there. And she was very confused a lot of the time. And my father, it was so hard for him and he would his reaction was to, was to try to demand that she not be confused and he would get angry and frustrated. That was all he, he couldn't, he couldn't do anything else. It was too painful. And he would, he would have this, this very difficult reactions to, to her trouble. And, and for me being in that situation, you know, there were times when was a lot of impatience, you know, wanting them to behave like grown-ups. You know, these are my parents after all, but that wasn't possible. So I learned a lot about patience by being impatient in this. If we just tell ourselves to be patient, you know, just to tolerate this Tolerate difficulties, okay, tell yourself, well, just be patient. We can, we can sometimes get tight and think, well, we just have to bear, bear this and, and tighten down. But we can really explore impatience and really get to know impatience. And this leads us to developing patience. You know, we see how it feels in our hearts and in our bodies and our minds when we're impatient. What are the, the moods and what are the thoughts that come there? What happens if we get identified with impatience? You know, how often do we react out of impatience? You know, we lashing out in anger or frustration and then we, we really live to regret it sometimes. I know with my father, there were times when I, I spoke harshly from a place of impatience and it was so painful and great learning for me there. My father was, had really refined the ability to push my buttons. Not intentionally, never intentionally, but you know, this is what families are, uh, this is their, 
they're really they're uh, well they're just really good at it <laughs> you know that's where we go to you know we can feel really equanimous here but you want to check reality check is to go spend time with your family and more practice will definitely be required There's one, uh, one thing that can really be helpful when we're de- trying to develop patience, cultivating patience, and, and with working with impatience. One thing to really look at here on retreat, I think, is a great opportunity is to really examine our relationship to unpleasant experience. You know, so often we relate to unpleasant experience as bad, as wrong something to get rid of. And we can write off a whole day here on the retreat because there was a predominance of an unpleasant feeling tone in our experience. You know, and we go into the interview and we report, well, it's not going too well, or I had a bad day yesterday. And then what we describe is that it was, there was an unpleasant feeling tone to a lot of our experience in our body, unpleasant feeling in the body, or unpleasant feeling in the mind, in the heart. And in the, conversely, you know, we say, oh, it's going really well. And usually, often this means that a higher percentage of the time our experience had a pleasant feeling tone. But if we relate to unpleasant feelings as wrong or bad, as something we've got to get rid of, and we're missing out on a, a real opportunity and we can write off a whole part of our life if this is the way we relate to it. We can dismiss these times as though they had no value. But actually there's a lot we can learn in the, right in the moment. And so if we can reframe this experience and bring some interest and investigation in, see see that there's something we can explore there. You know, in that moment, even with something very difficult and unpleasant, you know, our minds and our hearts can really open. There can be some acceptance of the truth of the way things are. And we can really find that our our whole perspective shifts. And we can start to touch a place of freedom right in the midst of unpleasant feelings. So this quality of investigation and inquiry at these times, it can lead us to a way that we meet our life more fully, more completely. You know, when we let go of trying to make life, make our experience meet our agenda, live up to our expectation of how we think it should be or how it's supposed to be, but we meet our life just as it is. You know, so much of the time if we find ourselves struggling in the day or somehow in contention with our experience or with life, it's because things aren't living up to our expectations. They're not meeting our agenda. Another useful thing to keep in mind in this process of cultivating patience is to remind ourselves that that our practice consists of of many small steps taken many times. You know, if we try to be mindful for the whole day or even for a whole sitting, 
we can set ourselves up for failure and we can get impatient and frustrated because it's, it's going to be hard to do. But we can be mindful just for one moment and then for the next moment. You know, we can make this light, manageable effort many times over. I found this technical definition of patience. It's kind of interesting. It says, patience has the characteristic of acceptance. Its function is to endure, endure the desirable and the undesirable. Its manifestation is tolerance or non-opposition. And seeing things as they really are is its proximate cause. Now, this quality of acceptance is really key. You know, we accept the truth of things. We take our stand on reality. We, we acknowledge the truth of the moment, not what we want it to be, but how it is. It's not resignation. There's no sense of resignation. Resignation is a state of defeat or collapse. But acceptance, real acceptance, is alive and, and very vital and connected. And so this proximate cause for the arising of patience, I think this is so interesting. The proximate cause is seeing things as they really are, connecting with the truth of the way it is in the moment. You know, we can focus so much on how we think it should be that we completely miss the way it is. We can always know right now it's like this. And there's a place in one of the suttas, it's the Buddha's discourse advice to Rahula. He was giving advice to his son. i warn you, this is slightly graphic. Sometimes the Buddha got kind of really spoke very directly about things. But he's speaking to his son and he said, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. Just as people throw clean things and dirty things, excrement, urine, spittle, pus and blood on the earth, and the earth is not repelled, humiliated and disgusted because of that, so too, Rahula, develop meditation that is like the earth. For when you develop meditation that is like the earth, Agreeable and disagreeable contacts will not invade your mind and remain. So this doesn't mean that we just let things pile up on us. We don't become sort of a doormat or there's no sort of resignation, as I said. But it's this quality of being like the earth where we're, we're steady and firm. We're impartial and, and resolute. You know, we sit like a mountain. It rains and snows and things walk on the mountain and do all kinds of things and the mountain is not moved. It says that the manifestation of patience is tolerance or non-opposition. This points to the aspect of patience that is not in contention with our experience, it's not struggling or fighting against things. And at the same time, there's no wilting, no retreating in the face of experience. 
patience has this ability to, to flow with the changes in life and it allows us to move with the changes that come inevitably without struggling. And there's a great strength of heart that can come from this because we don't falter in the face of what's difficult, but we don't shrink away, we don't shrink in defeat. We won't, don't withdraw either, we say, stay firm. Sometimes patience has this incredible quality of strength and courage and compassion. Sometimes there's great courage that arises in the form of patience. I'd like to read this quotation. It's from uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. This is from a sermon, a Christmas sermon on peace. It was given in 1967. We shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. Do to us what you will and we will still love you. We cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws and abide by the unjust system because non-cooperation with evil is as much a moral obligation as is cooperation with good. And so throw us in jail and we will still love you. Bomb our homes and threaten our children and as difficult as it is, we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and drag us out on the wayside road and leave us half dead as you beat us and we will still love you. Send your propaganda agents around the country and make it appear that we are not fit, culturally or otherwise, for integration, but we'll still love you. But be assured that we will wear you down by our capacity to suffer, and one day we will win our freedom. We will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win you in the process, and our victory will be a double victory. There's incredible courage and strength there and this quality of patience in a statement like that. I think one of the most beautiful aspects of patience is, is this courageous heart of compassion, a heart that knows suffering and understands the nature of delusion knows what it is like to act from confusion because we all have done this. We all have acted out of confusion, acted from a place of suffering. And so when we cultivate patience, we can bring kindness and compassion to bear in the face of this. The poet John Chardy had a beautiful description of patience that speaks, I think, directly to this. 
He said, patience is the art of caring slowly. The art of caring slowly. And there's a deep inner strength that comes from this. This patient heart brings kindness and compassion and steadiness and strength to bear. And it can hold all of the joys and sorrows, the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows that life will bring. And maybe one of the, the most important things to remember and really to remind ourselves is that worthwhile things in life usually take time to develop and to mature. And the seeds that we plant now, that they will sprout and they'll grow and they'll bear fruit in their season, in their time. This is, a, this is from Tanisaro Bhikkhu, Tan Jeff. And this was from a, a series of talks he gave specifically about uh, working with the breath, with Anapanasati. So there's references to the breath here, but we could put anything in there. It's not just about meditating on the breath. He said, good things always take time. The trees with the most solid heartwood are the ones that take the longest to grow. So we do the practice focusing on what we're doing rather than getting into an internal dialogue about when the results are going to come, what they're going to be like, and how we could speed up the practice. Many times our efforts to speed things up, up actually just get in the way. Our practice is pretty simple. Stay with the breath. Allow the mind to settle in with the breath and be friends with the breath. Allow the breath to open up and get more and more gentle, more and more porous, so your awareness can seep into the breath. That's all you have to do. As for whether the results are coming as quickly as you'd like, or when they do come, whether they're going to stay as long as you'd like, that's going to depend on what you're doing right here with the breath. Our desire to have the results come and our desire to have them stay is not going to keep them here. The actual doing of the practice is what will make the difference. So I'll end tonight with a poem it's by Linda France. It's called Dreaming the Real. I'm lying down looking at the color of sky falling through trees, dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me getting in the way? How could I forget the grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain, all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough, 
at least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it and feel it love me back under my skin. So let's keep sitting quietly for a few minutes. Thank you for your kind attention this evening. And there's time now for walking meditation. <laughs> 